0: Pick right back up in the beat attitudes, and man, oh man, I I, uh, I appreciate you guys adjusting the announcements be, being before um, the message because it it just I come out of worship. I don't know about you. I think Lance, you say it best. When man, you know it's a good worship session when you just come out of it sweating. You know, it's like like you can't contain it when when you're worshiping Jesus and you just let go and you let the Holy Spirit move and you let Him uh, shape you and prepare your hearts and soften you and and I it for me every time I come up here right before the message and have to uh, have five minutes of announcements it kind of stops that (laughs) and so selfishly I'm just like I'm jacked to get in His Word I'm just pumped. Uh, to be able to unpack it to you this morning as faithfully as I limit, in my limited capacity can. And so Matthew 5, starting in verse 1, we'll read the Beatitudes this morning. He said, Now Jesus, when saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside, sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. of the Lord. And and as we as we stop there, I just invite you to turn to the end of the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7. So Matthew 7 starting in verse 24. And and Jesus is is preaching the most famous sermon ever preached by the most famous man that's ever lived, by the most powerful human that has ever lived. And what does he have to say? He unpacks the upside-down kingdom, the right-side-up kingdom in his eyes, but the upside-down kingdom in our eyes. And Jesus says, if you... What's the point of all that I'm saying? Verse 24, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundations on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Look at how the people responded. Verse 28, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he had taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Jesus says, you can, you can listen to these words all you want. You can, you can be amazed and astonished by these words all you want. But to be amazed by something and to put your faith in something are two different things. To be amazed by a roller coaster." Man, I stand in amazement at all of these roller coasters. You ask me to hop on that roller coaster? No way. Why? Because I'm amazed by it, but I'm not going to put my life's claim on it. And it's the same thing with Jesus. Jesus is calling us to more than flippant amazement, although we should be by Jesus. He's amazing, right? He's amazing. Like, I even asked that question in my own heart this morning. He's amazing, but to stand in amazement at him and not listen to what he says with my life, I could be out there with you listening to someone preach and unpack God's word all I want and nod my head in agreement, but what's really going to determine if I really believe these words? How I live outside of here. Is my house truly built on the rock? Is my house truly built on Christ? Because Jesus is saying here that suffering is a part of life, isn't it? The winds came, the storm came. And what's going to reveal where you've built your house more than anything, church? When pain and suffering comes. And so last week we looked at this and we, we said, what is God doing? We stopped in the Beatitudes and we looked at what is God doing in our life because Jesus teaches us that storms and pain and suffering are a part of a post-Genesis 3 world. And if that's the case, then what is he doing in our pain and suffering? Well, suffering in Christ's kingdom is the catalytic agent, the white hot fire, the refining fire that First Peter tells us. 1 Peter chapter 1, that makes us more like Jesus, that reveals fully God's pursuit and God's love of you and I, to rid us of the things that we tend to put our dependency on. Because what you don't receive vertically, you will search for horizontally. What you don't receive vertically, you will search for it and grab onto it horizontally. And God loves us way too much to grip on created things rather than the creator of those things. And suffering and pain and and all of these things are agents, God's agents of redemption for you and I to grab onto him. And listen to me, I am not coming, I need to hear that. In my own walk of pain, in my own walk of infertility, in my own walk of of all of that, of my own walk of grabbing on to who I am rather than who he is, I need to hear that God is going to rip those things away from me because he loves me, not because he hates me. Because he knows that those things will never be able to satisfy me. My kids can't be my source of affirmation. Your spouse can't be your source of affirmation. They point to the one that is and so jesus comes in and he ends the sermon on the mount now back to matthew 5 and he's saying whose house are you building upon mine or someone else's a life that jesus calls us to is a life that we can only live empowered by him And so Jesus comes and he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for righteousness. And blessed are the merciful. Because he's saying that my world will look and rub up against what you are currently experiencing in this world. And I'm inviting you into my world. See, the whole Sermon on the Mount is an invitation into life with God. Because life with God, to have nothing of this world, and to have God is to have everything. But to have everything of this world and not have God is to have nothing. And Jesus says, this is what life with God looks like. And listen, it's not by your own work. It's not by your own merit. It's not by your own effort. You need me to live this kind of life. You can't do it without me. You need to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's why if you're journeying with us before we walk through Romans 8, and life in the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit, dependent upon the Spirit, I think we are a little afraid to talk about the Holy Spirit. And and it's the Spirit that empowers us and that, that is indwelling in us to, to guide us, to shape us, to form us through our suffering, to be more like Jesus in this world. It's the Spirit that as we read the Bible, as we read this text, it is the Spirit that takes what we read in the Word and what we study on paper about Jesus, and moves it into more than just 30,000 feet up in the air, but makes it a a reality in our life. It is the Spirit that does that work. It's one thing to know of your Father's love. It's one thing to be told that your Father loves you, right? Right? It's one thing for, for you to be told that your father loves you. You believe him. You take him at his word. But it is another thing. It is more real to be swept up in his embrace with your, heart, with your head against his heart, hearing his heartbeat and being swept up in the reality of that love of your dad, that you're safe, that you're protected, that you're known, and that you're loved. And it is the spirit that does that. It's the Spirit that takes this message that I'm preaching out of my mouth and the Holy Spirit then translates it to your heart by no power of my own. For you to be changed, to be more like Jesus, it's one thing to know the Father's love, but it's another thing to be experienced in the Father's love, to be embraced in the Father's love. And it's the Spirit. Jesus says in John 16, if you're a note taker, That the spirit in you is better than me beside you. That's a summary. It's not going to be verbatim. Don't be like, Derek, that's not in my Bible. That's a summary of that. John chapter 16. So everything in us then, in the Beatitudes cannot be had apart from the spirit indwelling in us everything in us the world will say you can live this kind of life just try harder and jesus says you can't apart from me you can't this is not a life for you in the flesh to be able to live you can't do this apart from me you don't enter into these things with a pride you enter into the beatitudes on your knees And so the Beatitudes do two things to us. They one, they launch us into our need for salvation. So listen, I I fully expect there are those of you listening this morning, right here this morning, who don't know Jesus, who don't, who want to, who so desperately want to, who who long after something more. And so the Beatitudes drive you to your need for him, salvation, and secondly, for those of you who are, they catapult you into your need for him for sanctification. The Beatitudes show us a different way to live. They show us what the good news of the gospel feels like, tastes like, looks like. It opposes what we've been so discipled in in this world. Jesus comes and says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse four, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The world tells you don't mourn. Just cover it up. Even if you want to grieve, don't do it. Just act like you're better than what you are and everything will be okay. Okay. And Jesus says, no, 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 mourn. I wept, mourn. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The world will tell you to hunger and thirst after your own way, by your own power, and however you want to live, and then you will be happy. Then you will, have, you will actually have the blessed life. And Jesus comes in and says, no. Don't hunger and thirst after those things, hunger and thirst after me. I'm the only thing that can satisfy you. I am the bread of life. I am the eternal water. And it's available to you. Don't long and thirst after those things. They bring you death. I bring you life. Which one do you want? Jesus says, Blessed are the merciful. Why? For they will be shown mercy. To be a Christian, then, is to be a recipient of an almighty flow of undeserved kindness. For disciples of Jesus, those who are actively being discipled by, taught by, loved by, pursued by, listening to Jesus, the whole structure of the Beatitudes communicate the mercy of God on us. The first four, poor in spirit, mourn, meek, and hunger, Describe being empty before God. (laughs) Nothing, it's that him, right? Nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross I cling. I bring nothing in my hands. I'm empty. The first four describe being empty. And such is the nature of our salvation. You enter into the kingdom of heaven, not by your works, not by your merit, so that no man may boast, but by the work and merit of Christ and Christ alone. You go to the cross empty-handed. You bring nothing to the table but your need. And then the next the fifth beatitude turns the corner of what we receive and how we, how we move out of being filled by God. Look, verse three, we're poor in spirit. Verse four, we're mourners. Verse five, we're meek. Verse six, we're hungering and thirsting. Now in verse seven, we turn the corner and we look, having received the kingdom of heaven, having been comforted by God, true comfort is a comfort that God gives you, not what this world gives you. Every other comfort is a Band-Aid, just a numbing agent. I don't know what your struggles are in your past, but addiction in, to any kind is a numbing agent to deal with something that's really going on underneath. It's real, and it's true, and, it, and it's captivating because it numbs you to what's really going on. And Jesus you, you will be comforted when you hunger and thirst after me. Having been promised the world in verse 5, Have you been filled fully, we flow to the world to pour out ourselves for the sake of the world. This is the flow, empty before God and so filled by him. Now we are poured out to those around us in the nations. Grace runs downhill from heaven to us and from us to the world. I love that. Grace runs downhill from heaven to us and from us to the rest of the world. But if you look like, more like the world, you have nothing to give the world. Grace runs downhill. Let's turn really quickly to Exodus 16. And I want to show, I want to combat maybe the thinking out there that, that God was not merciful or God was not grace-filled until the New Testament when Christ was born. And, and The the nature and characteristics of Jesus is the nature and characteristics of God. Hebrews 1 tells us that Jesus is the exact representation, the exact nature of all that God is. He fully expresses the invisible nature of God our Father in his life, death, and resurrection. Jesus is fully man and fully God. You want to know who God is? You look to Jesus. You want to know his love for you? You look to Jesus. You want to know the lengths he's willing to go? Because of that love for you, you look to Jesus. And so we go back to Exodus 16. And we see that verse one, that the Israelite people are, are rescued from the Israel, or the Egyptians, and they're, they're, they move through the Red Sea, and they're saved out of the land of slavery. And what do they go back to? What do they do out of all of the miracles of God that they just experienced? What is their instinct? What's their, what do they fall back on? What are they doing here in chapter 16? They're complaining again. They they look look at verse 3. The Israelites said to them to Aaron and Moses, those who are leading the people by God's grace, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt, there we sat around by pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us out into the desert to starve this entire assembly to death. What are they? Do they have anything in their hands? No, they're empty. Because sometimes God will empty you in order for him to fill you. Sometimes God will bring you to the end of yourselves in order for you to be filled with him. And so God takes them and he rescues them and he does this amazing miracle through the parting of the Red Sea and saves them from the hands of the Egyptians. And look, they're complaining again. They want to go back. They'd rather be enslaved than to be free. And God shows them mercy. Look at verse four. Then the Lord of Exodus 16, then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they will bring in, what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. What does God do in their emptiness, in their longing to go back to slavery? What does God do for you and me in our longing to go back to the ways of this world, in our longing to go back to, to, to our enslavement of what, doing what we want to do, how we want to do it, when we want to do it? What does he do in his grace and mercy? If you are willing, he will fill you up. And not just that. Not just that. Look what he did on this sixth day. On this sixth day, verse 5. They are to prepare what they bring in, and in that, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. Why on the sixth day? Well, because Sabbath is coming. Not only does God give them what they don't deserve, that He gives them more than they deserve. He then gives them rest out of what He provides. Because there is no true rest apart from receiving what God gives you. Go ahead and grab after the world's ways of rest, only to find, guys, I am talking out of personal life experience, right here, right now, the struggle for me as your pastor is to find my rest in something and someone other than Christ. To find my life in something or in someone other than Christ. I drift so easily to longing after my wife's affirmation rather than out of being affirmed with Jesus. I have her love. I long, right, at my worst, I look for you to approval rather than Christ and his approval. Oh, I need rest. And Jesus is offering it. God in Exodus 16 gives them not only food, But rest, and and if you keep reading, you'll notice that that food tastes like honey, Has a glimpse of honey. He gives them a foretaste of the future land that he will give them, a land that's full of what? Milk and honey. And he says, I'm going to give you this. I'm going to provide this for you. For 40 years, I'll give you this, and I'll provide this for you so that you may live your life in reverse out of the promises I've given you so that you may live your life backwards. The end is already secure in Christ. We know the end of the story. We now can live our life out of that promise, not to secure or earn that promise. That's the good news of the gospel. Back in Exodus 16. (laughs) Back to Matthew 5. So verse 7 comes in and says this. Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. The Beatitudes do two things. They drive you to your need for salvation, and they catapult you out of your salvation into transformation. So the question we must ask ourselves when we read each one of these Beatitudes, for this one, for verse 7, the question to ask is, are we merciful? Are you merciful? merciful. The word merciful here is used only one other time in the New Testament and 20 other times in the Old Testament. It's used in Hebrews 2 verse 17, if you want to just fact check that with me. And it's used 20 other times in the Old Testament. And every other time it's used in the Old Testament, it's referring to the mercy and compassion of God. The essential thought is this, that mercy gives attention to those in misery. Believers deserve eternal separation from a holy God because of their sin. Because of my sin, I deserve, what I'm entitled to, is separation from my dad, from my father, from my creator, But because of God's mercy poured out onto you and I through the grace and love of Jesus Christ and forgiveness through him, through the gospel, we now get eternal life. And we now today have power to live transformed, changed lives because of that mercy. The important distinction then to make is between grace and mercy. What's the difference? Grace is shown to the undeserving and mercy is compassion to those in misery. Both are actions. Both respond. Mercy is not just simply a feeling compassion towards someone, but exists when someone, something is done to alleviate the distress. If you see suffering but you don't do anything about it, you may be provoked to an emotional response to it, but merciful people are moved to action on behalf of what they see and when they encounter suffering. Mercy has an active approach in alleviating pain and suffering. One person wrote out three elements of mercy. I see the need and recognize it. I'm moved by the need and motivated by it. And I move to meet the need and I act on it. I see the need. I'm moved by the need in my gut. And I move to meet the need. Are we merciful people? All of this then is founded upon the mercy of God towards us. It's a picture of God's love towards us through Christ. Did God leave you and I, according to the good news of the gospel, did God leave you and I to figure it out on our own, in our own misery? Did he say good luck with that? I'm for you, but good luck with that. I can't help you here. He saw our need. He was motivated by it, by his glory revealed in his love. God was moved towards us. Jesus is the picture of God moving towards you and me in his mercy. He's the picture of it. He came to you. He came to me at my lowest. He came to me and he met me and he said, you insecure 14-year-old, I'm going to make you someone who's an agent of reconciliation in the world today to proclaim the good news of the gospel You have a purpose. You no longer have to look for it in other people or other things. You have it in me. Everything you long for is found in me. He didn't say, good luck, figure that out. He doesn't say that to you either. Jesus is the picture of God's mercy to us. It's the good news of the gospel. He was moved out of his own glory to reveal his own love towards his son and us revealed fully in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. To do what? To show us mercy. It's illustrated then by Leviticus 16 in the mercy seat. So I'm not going to go there, but the mercy seat is this, this uh, it's in the Holy of Holies. On the day of atonement, the great high priest would enter the Holy of Holies, the curtain He would enter the curtain and he'd make an offering and a sacrifice, an atonement for our sins, his first and then the sins of the nation next. This place, the mercy seat, was the place where the Lord God accepted the satisfactory sacrifice to atone for the nation's sins. Once each year on the day of atonement, the mercy seat, God was moved with pity and compassion towards his people and took action to reconcile them to himself through the, accepting, through the accepting of the blood of a goat in their place. The gospel literally is Christ in my place. Jesus is our great high priest who goes behind the curtain, who makes propitiation for our sins, atonement for our sins. He's the goat who was slain. He was sacrificed on yours and I behalf out of the mercy of God himself. How awesome is that? Is that good news to you? Is it freeing for you that you don't have to earn God's love, that you can just receive it? Is it the greatest news that you have ever heard in your life that God's love for us is received in Christ fully, given to us in Christ fully, and with empty hands, I can be filled with the love of God? Are you kidding me? Are we merciful people? Or am I a merciful person? Mercy literally means full of mercy. You know they say like don't translate, don't, uh, don't explain a word by the word? I'm going to do it. Mercy means full of mercy. Turn with me to Lamentations. Lamentations chapter 3, please. Talking about God's mercy here, it's just read it. You're just, just sit in it. His mercy is new each morning. It's every day you wake up and it's new. It's, it's there for you, it's unending. His mercy is new, it's infinite, that his mercies never fail. And in the scandal of the gospel, who does God demonstrate his unfailing mercy to? You and me. Toward us, his undeserving, rebellious, stiff-necked, chosen people, he reveals his mercy to us. Now back to Matthew 5. You go to God empty-handed. You are full. You're poor in spirit. And what will you receive? The kingdom of heaven. You are mourning the loss of the brokenness of your own innocence. You are mourning it. You don't have it. And what will happen to you? You will be comforted. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who truly know themselves and know their need. Blessed are those who are humble in spirit. Why? For they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst, not hunger and thirst for this world, but hunger and thirst after who? Jesus, righteousness. Why? For you will be filled. Blessed are the merciful. Why? For they will be shown mercy. Jesus tells us that being merciful then is a characteristic of, a disposition of, Someone who's living in his kingdom. Someone who's received the infinite mercies of God. Jesus is saying in the Beatitudes, you know you're living in my kingdom when you are poor, when you are mourning, when you are meek, when you are hungry and thirsty, and when you are merciful. And if you aren't, then it begs the question, whose kingdom are you living in, yours or mine? if you're more attracted to the ways of this world than you are the ways of Christ's kingdom, then whose kingdom are you living in? If, you're more, if you have more affinity to a political party than you do Christ and his kingdom, then whose kingdom are you living in? In this world of polarization, if you find more affinity with an us versus them mindset versus an us mindset, then whose kingdom are you living in? If in this world you want your ways and your opinions to be heard and win arguments and beat people up more than you do to reveal and display the love of God in this world, then whose kingdom are you living in, yours or his If you're living for your own wants and your own needs and your own ways, by your own strength, then whose kingdom are you living in, yours or his? This world is not the prize. Christ is the prize. Heaven would not be heaven apart from Jesus being there. Whose kingdom are you living in, yours or his? Nothing will exhibit our salvation better than our own readiness to give forgiveness to those who need forgiveness, to give grace to those who don't deserve it, and to show mercy to those who are suffering. Nothing will display and exhibit our salvation, church, more than us actually living out our salvation. If you've received mercy, you'll give mercy. If you received grace, nobody shows grace more than the person who knows they need grace. Amen? Why? Because it reveals that we have it in Christ. The gospel says you cannot, you cannot, you cannot give what you don't possess. It is impossible to do so. Mercy known will always result in mercy shown. Are we, am I merciful? Look at Philippians 2 with me quickly. Philippians chapter two, verse five, beginning in verse five. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, the mercy of God. He perfectly displays the love of God. He perfectly exhibits and reveals to you and I those who are longing for God's love, those who are longing for God's mercy, those who are longing for God's forgiveness. He perfectly displays that to you and I in his life, death, and resurrection. This is the good news of the gospel. And I'll end by unpacking the second part of Matthew 5 briefly. Matthew 5 chapter verse 7. Blessed are the merciful why for they will be shown mercy so so some people can interpret this you may even in your mind interpret this if i could just be merciful towards others then god will be merciful towards me forgive others as god has forgiven you right So it's almost as if then I shall be the condition of my mercy being given to me by God will be me giving it to others. I am then conditioning God's mercy. I am then earning God's mercy through my being merciful. Is that what we're seeing here? So what does it mean? It means that you're earning God's love, earning God's mercy by being merciful yourself. If you are merciful, then you will receive it. Almost like you're twisting God's arm to give you mercy. It sounds this way, but is it? This is the genius of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. He, he says certain things. I mean, I mean, he's the greatest orator. He's the greatest man that has ever lived, right? He says certain things to kinda of put a hook in you, to make you squirm in your seat. But that doesn't sound right. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just going to be honest. I don't know about you, but nine times out of 10, I'm reading the words of Jesus, and I'm like, "Mm." shoot. (laughs) He says certain things that just sticks with you, and in a way that seems odd, it forces you to reflect and to step back, to look and examine what is really being said. He forces you, God's word forces you to wrestle with it. Here's the paradox of mercy. If you are not merciful, it's not God that's unwilling to give you mercy. It's that you're unwilling, unable to receive it. It's not that God is unwilling to extend mercy to you. It's rather that your heart heart is hard and you're unwilling and unable to receive it. Here's the the paradox. Salvation is of God's mercy. Salvation is a divine gift. Salvation is God's pitying you enough to act on it and do something about it. But if your heart is hard, you are incapable of receiving that mercy. That's why it's blessed to be poor in spirit. (laughs) Again, he's a genius. It's why it's blessed to realize you bring nothing to the table. It's why it's you're blessed when you mourn the loss of this world and yourself being as you were created to be. It's why it's imperative that you approach the throne of God empty-handed because empty-handed is all we are. It's only the merciful, only those whose hearts have been softened that are able to receive God's mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Jesus is really saying that in this text that I am only truly forgiven when I am truly repentant. I am only truly forgiven when I'm truly repentant. Desire doesn't save you. To be truly repentant realizes that I deserve nothing but punishment. And if I'm to be forgiven, it is to be attributed entirely to the love of God and to his mercy and grace and to nothing and no one else. If I'm truly repentant, I realize my position before God and realize that I'm only forgiven. In that then, I shall forgive all those who trespass against me. Let me just ask a stinging question to my own heart. How quick am I to forgive when someone trespasses against my? desires how quick am i to show mercy to someone who so desperately needs it how quick am i and listen to me the hardest person to show grace mercy and love to is the ones who are closest to you because they usually hurt you the most how quick am i the answer not as quick as jesus not as quick as I long to be, not as quick as I hunger to be, not as quick as I thirst to be. And this is the point. Remember, the point of the be attitudes is to drive you into your need for salvation and drive you into the source of your sanctification, your transformation. The whole point of these be attitudes in the Sermon on the Mount is you can't, you can't, you can't, but Jesus can. If you haven't already come to the realization that you can't be this way on your own power, by your own strength, then this might be the thrust to get you into that mindset. If you find yourself asking, how can I ever truly be poor in spirit? If you answer the question, am I poor in spirit, with a yes, I would argue that you're not. If you answer the question, am I meek? And you answer with a yes, I would argue that you're not. How can I ever truly thirst and hunger for righteousness? How can I ever really be merciful? It's the whole point. You must receive the one who is perfect in every way in each of these things. Look at next week, verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. If you find yourself, how can I ever be pure in heart, in thought, motive, and deed? How can I? The answer, by receiving a new heart through the good news of the gospel. That's how. I can't make my heart pure. I need a heart transplant. You can't make your heart pure. You need a heart transplant. And in Christ, through the power of the gospel, we obtain an entirely new heart with new motives and new desires and new thirst and new hungers. You can't get a new heart by trying to be like Jesus. You get a pure heart by being incorporated into Jesus. By receiving him by grace, what you can't possibly give yourself by effort. The whole point of the Beatitudes then is to show you that this kind of life is impossible apart from grace. No one is just naturally like this. This isn't just a description of of my temperament or your temperament or someone's temperament. It's a life that's being lived out through the mercy and grace of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. You can't do this apart from a new heart. So maybe you're here this morning and you realize the response for you is maybe you realize that you're not like this. Maybe he's provoking you. This is nothing like I've experienced, nothing like I've ever longed for. This life in Christ's kingdom is nothing like I've ever experienced before. I'm an outsider looking into a life that I've never seen and experienced before. Then Jesus is inviting you in. God is not unwilling to show you mercy. It's that you're unwilling to receive it. You... Maybe come to the end of yourself and recognize that you don't hunger and thirst for righteousness, that you aren't merciful, that you're not poor in spirit, that you aren't mourning the brokenness of this world, but you need to. He's bringing you to the place where you would see your emptiness in yourself and receive his fullness, where you would humble yourself and enter his kingdom by faith in him and then grow into becoming a person like this. Then there's others of you in this room who have come to Jesus. You've received him. And this is how you're supposed to have the same effect. You're supposed to look at this and say, you mean this is what I'm supposed to look like? You mean I'm supposed to be poor? You mean I'm supposed to realize I have nothing in my hands to bring You mean I'm supposed to be meek and not proud? You mean I'm supposed to hunger and thirst not after more money or more things or more feelings or more things of this world? You mean I'm supposed to hunger and thirst after Jesus and Him alone? I'm not doing so good at that. I'm not doing so good at that. Do you understand? I, the response here is not you're not doing so good at that. The response here is I'm not doing so good at that. It's the only proper response. I need Jesus. I need to die to myself. I need to grow in righteousness. I need more of Jesus in my life right now. I need more of grace than I have right now. You aren't supposed to look at this and say, man, this is what I've been called to. I'm killing it. You're supposed to look at this and fall on your knees begging for mercy for more of this. The B attitudes are a mirror to drive us to salvation and then a vision to pull us into transformation. The Sermon on the Mount not only comes from Jesus, but leads us to Jesus, leads us to Jesus who alone can fulfill them in us if we let him. The Beatitudes are there to show us our need, and he alone can fill this need in us if we let him. So if you aren't a Christian this morning, if you recognize that this life is not what you've experienced, we have been praying that you would experience this in the good news of the gospel and receive it by faith that you would hunger and thirst for this kind of life. If you are a Christian, our prayer is that you would break, that this would break you of your pride and self-reliance and your passivity and that you would see this life that you were meant to live. It's the life that Jesus came to make possible for you and for me. To see how desperate we are to cling to his grace, how desperate we need to move and long for his holiness, how desperate we need to ask him to work in us and make us more like himself. So let's do that. Where are you at this morning? Where are you? Are you seeing yourself as someone who doesn't even long for these things? Would you ask that God would give that in you? That he would put that in you? That he would put the heart of Christ in you? That God in the gospel would give you a new heart, a new motive, and you would be made new this morning? And if you are made new, would you pray that God would line up what you know to be true in your head and believe in your heart with how you live your life, that the gap would be shortened from what you know in your head and believe in your heart and live in your life, that those gaps would be shortened and that we may be changed and live new. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Let me sit here 20, 30 seconds of silence in response. You let the Holy Spirit move in you, man. What's he saying to you? He's actively inviting you in to listen to him if you just would. God, what are you saying is the question you can just keep asking. God, what are you saying? How do you want me to respond? I'm willing. I long to be willing maybe. Help me. we're listening God so God we ask you very simply Help us to be more like Jesus. Help us to see that apart from you we can't be. Help us to see our poor and spiritedness. Help us to see our poverty apart from being filled with you. Help us to see the death that pride brings. Help us to see the death that this world brings. Help us to see that the hunger and thirst after more of this world only leads to death, and hunger and thirst after you brings life. So help us, Lord. We can't do this apart from you. We need you, Holy Spirit, to move and work in us. Thank you for the good news of the gospel. It's our hope for salvation, and it's our hope for sanctification. We long for you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing as we fly out of here.